Church family, as your pastors, one of the great joys of my life is to, to shepherd you and to love you and to, to lead you. And I seek to lead you in a Colossians 1.28 approach. So I labor and I pray to prepare you for that great and glorious day where you are presented before the Lord Jesus Christ, complete and mature in him. I labor for that out of great love for you and out of obedience to the word. As a pastor, God has given instruction on how we are to lead and shepherd his flock. He tells us in 1 Peter 5 to shepherd the flock that is among you. We are to teach sound doctrine, Titus chapter 2. We are to preach the word, 2 Timothy 4. We are to declare the whole counsel of God, Acts chapter 20. There's a responsibility and a task that God has given to pastors, overseers, elders, shepherds, all the same word, in which God has called men to lead. Over the next two Sundays, we're going to be dealing with a topic that is difficult and can be painful. We're going to be talking about what Jesus teaches in Mark chapter 10 regarding marriage divorce, and remarriage. Now, there are pastors who often will stay away from this topic. They'll stiff arm it because they're not interested in causing people harm or to cause disruption. Um, but I think all scripture is God-breathed. It's profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. If God has put it in his word, it's important that we, as God's people, allow the book to govern our hearts and our lives. Now, let me tell you what these next two weeks are going to look like and what they're not going to look like. The next two weeks are not going to look like this, okay? Unfortunately, there are those who have taken the word and used it like a meat cleaver, hacking away, dividing, hurting, destroying, this is not the way God has designed his word to work. God's word is not to be used to hurt, to hack, or to destroy God's people. In fact, Hebrews chapter 4, it's, it's sharper than a two-edged sword. In fact, God's word is much more like a scalpel in the hand of a skilled surgeon. The cut is designed to bring healing. And so as we are about to open God's word and to see what God says about this controversial topic, this painful topic, I want you to know as your shepherd, I seek to use the word of God not as a way to hack, but as a way to heal, to allow the spirit to use the inspired word that he wrote to bring blessing and to bring life. Indeed, the purpose of the word, one of the many purposes of the word, is to cut out the cancer of sin, to cut out what is deadly. Indeed, the purpose of the word, indeed, is to break off and to cut that which does not bear fruit, so that fruit might come forth. So the question is, what does Jesus teach about marriage, divorce, 
in remarriage. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Mark chapter 10. As you're turning to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, we're going to be getting back into a sermon series called On the Move. We started this series a while back, walking through the Gospel of Mark together as a faith family, and it's entitled On the Move because it's a fast-paced, hard-hitting book. We see the, the book of Mark is almost like someone is following Jesus around with their phone and they're videoing his actions. They see him do this, they see him do that, and they are recording it. It's fast-paced. In fact, the word immediately, it shows up 41 times in Mark's gospel. He's continually driving us to Jesus, who not only is the promised Messiah, but he is the, the son of God, the true servant of God, who has come to work and to labor for the good of God's people. It's taken us about 32 messages to get to Mark chapter 10, and if you want to go back, you can listen to those previous messages on our website or on the Westwood app or on iTunes. But so far, what we have seen in Mark's gospel is that it's divided primarily into two ge geographic parts. Chapters 1 through 9 primarily take place in the north. We see up around the Sea of Galilee. Apart from Jesus' baptism and his temptation in chapter 1, everything else takes place up north around the Sea of Galilee. Now, when you read Matthew and Luke and John, you see where Jesus makes multiple trips to Jerusalem, down south, and to other areas to do ministry. But for Mark's gospel, he just divides it into geographic areas. So chapters 1 through 9 are up north. Chapter 10 through the end of the book and chapter 16 are primarily in the south. Right there, really in central Israel around the city of Jerusalem. In fact, we'll see in 52 verses, starting in Mark chapter 11, where Jesus does go into Jerusalem. But in chapter 10, he's not quite there yet. We see him heading down south, but not quite to Jerusalem. With me, look with me in Mark chapter 10, beginning with verse 1. The scripture says, he set out from there and went to the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Then crowds converged on him again, and as was his custom, he taught them again. Some Pharisees came to test him, asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He replied to them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses permitted us to write divorce papers and to send her away. But Jesus told them, he wrote this command for you because of the hardness of your hearts. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples questioned him about this matter. He said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. Also, if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. As Jesus arrives in the region of Judea on the east side of the Jordan River, a group of Pharisees, these Jewish religious leaders, show up and they, verse 2, tested Jesus. Now, this word for tested is the same word used in chapter 1 where Satan is tempting Jesus. And so we see that the motives of these Pharisees is not to learn. They're not humble and teachable. They're not seeking the wisdom of Jesus. In fact, it's the exact opposite. 
They're seeking to accuse. They're testing him. They are tempting him. They are trying to draw him off sides. They are wanting to set him up for failure. They don't want to learn from Jesus. Instead, they're using the word of God as a weapon for personal gain. And they're also trying to trip Jesus up and discredit him. Well, what are they up to? Well, remember where Jesus is. He's back to the location where John the Baptist's ministry was. In fact, he's probably near the site where Jesus was baptized by John back in chapter 1. And what's interesting is we go back to Mark chapter 6, we remember what happened to John the Baptist when he declared God's view on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. When he declared to King Herod God's view, John ended up being beheaded. And so here are the Pharisees tempting Jesus, testing Jesus, trying to get him to say something similar to what John the Baptist said so that he might get the same result as John. I want you this morning to see here in the text how Jesus responds to the Pharisees' question regarding divorce. The first thing I want you to see is what does the Bible say? Jesus goes right to the heart. What does the Bible say? Verse 3, what did Moses command you? Jesus is pointing the Pharisees back to the words of Moses, back to the prophet of God in the Old Testament whom they revered. Jesus is pointing the Pharisees back to the scriptures. Yet you also notice how Jesus uses, uh, sees the words of Moses applicable to the Pharisees. In verse 3, what did Moses command you? I love that. You see, the word of God is to be applied to people. The scripture is to be used. It's not just some historical book. It's not some narrative. No, no, no. It is a living and active, breathing book that God continues to use, and it is to be applied to people. And the question Jesus is getting to is, what does the Bible say? Now, hear me on this. This is one of the most important questions that you must answer when people begin asking you questions about topics and issues of the day. Your response is not, well, my opinion is, no, 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 no. It's not about your opinion. What does the Bible say about that particular topic? You see, as the people of God, we are to be people of the book. We let the word of God govern and guide and direct us on how we are to live, how we are th- how to think, how we are to feel, how we are to live out the gospel. It doesn't matter what your opinion is. It matters what the word says. The word is what governs and has the final word on all things pertaining to life and to godliness. You see, if you're seeking wisdom, you don't go to carnal worldly people. You go to the scriptures. If you want relationship advice, you don't go to Cosmo or People Magazine. You go to the Word. If you want wisdom on marriage and divorce, you don't go to the bar. You don't go to the barbershop. You don't go to get your nails did. You go to the scriptures. It doesn't matter what your coworkers think. It doesn't matter what the world thinks. It matters what God thinks. Well, what does God think about marriage and divorce and remarriage? Well, I want you to notice in the text these three C's regarding marriage and divorce. 
The first one is this. I want you to see God's command and his protection of women. The Pharisees, they knew their Old Testament. They were well-schooled in their knowledge of the law. And there were two different groups of Pharisees that held two different views of divorce. One group held that sexual immorality was the only reason for divorce. But then there was a second group of Pharisees who, who held up a tradition of interpreting Deuteronomy 24 as freedom for a husband to divorce his wife for any reason at all. Okay, and it's, it's the second group here that Jesus is addressing. For they respond to Jesus' question. Look at verse 4. Moses permitted us to write divorce papers and to send her away. For that's, these are these Pharisees, okay? So in their view, if your wife burned your toast, if she forgot to make coffee, if she didn't fold your clothes right, then you can just divorce her. That's their interpretation of Deuteronomy 24. It's whatever the husband wants to do. He can divorce her for any reason at all. They saw this, this tradition from Deuteronomy 24 that they misinterpreted, but created this idea that, you know what? I can just marry whoever I want to, and then as soon as she doesn't satisfy me, as soon as she doesn't please me, well, I'll just write her a divorce paper, and I'll move on to someone else. They saw Deuteronomy 24 was like a loophole for them to do whatever they wanted to do. They could jump from wife to wife, thinking that God was cool with it. Now, the Pharisees, they had taken a passage of Scripture designed to restrict divorce, and they turned it around to use it as a license to divorce. But Jesus repudiated this kind of thinking. Jesus rejected those who would take the Word of God and create a new system to create a tradition over his word. In Matthew uh, 15, verse 3, Jesus rebuked the Pharisees by saying, why do you break God's commandment because of your tradition? Well, here in Mark 10, he tells them, verse 5, Moses wrote this command for you because of the hardness of your hearts. You see, throughout the Old Testament, God called his people Israel stiff-necked, hard-hearted, they were going to do whatever they wanted to do. They didn't trust the Lord. They didn't follow his word. And there were times in which they just turned their back completely on him. They didn't walk with him. They didn't trust him. And what Jesus is doing here, he's pointing to, to Moses' command and saying it was designed to reduce the fallout from the hardness of hearts of the people. The command was designed to protect wives from abandonment. See, some Pharisees saw this command as permission to divorce for whatever reason. Jesus held up this command as a concession on restricted divorce. Some of the Pharisees, they turned it into permission to do whatever they wanted to do. Treat their wife however they wanted to treat her. And Jesus is saying, no, nah, you've missed the point. The command is given to restrict divorce, not to endorse it. And its design is to keep people like you Pharisees from leaving women from being vulnerable with no provision and no protection. We see Jesus here. He sees the, the design of Deuteronomy 24 and sees it as something bigger than that these Pharisees can see. The second C word that we see here in the text is God's creation design for marriage. 
Jesus contrasts the Pharisees' argument for divorce, for whatever purposes they wanted, to God's original design when the world began. Jesus points back to Genesis 1 and 2 as God's design for marriage. Look at what Jesus says, verse 6. But from the beginning of creation, here is Jesus holding up creation, not evolution, not the Big Bang. Jesus is holding up creation. From the beginning of creation, Jesus says, God made them male and female. We see in Genesis 1 and 2 not only the creation, but the celebration of two sexes, male and female. Regardless of what the world says, there are only two sexes, male and female. God designed it this way, and he declared it, Genesis 1, good. This is a good design. And here is Jesus in Mark 10 affirming God's Genesis 1 design, and he's applying it to marriage. Look at the text, verse 7. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. Here we see God's design for marriage is clear. One man and one woman for life. Marriage is not designed to be between a man and a man. It is not designed to be between a woman and a woman. Marriage is not designed to be between a man and an animal. It is not designed to be between an animal and an animal. It is not designed to be with more than the two people of one man and one woman. This is not God's design. We see God going on record right here of clearly stating what marriage is. Now, if man created marriage, then we can define it however we want to. But man did not create marriage. God did. And since God is the one who created marriage, he is the one who sets the terms. God is the one who defines what marriage is. And he defines it between one man and one woman for life. It doesn't matter what a president says. It doesn't matter what a Supreme Court says. It doesn't matter what a governor says. It matters that God has gone on record and he has clearly and firmly declared marriage is between one man and one woman for life. Here we see Jesus holding this up. Now, an argument that I've heard before is that Jesus never addressed homosexual marriage. And I would push back and say, I disagree. Because it's interesting, Genesis to Revelation is the word of Christ. The entire Bible is red letter. God has gone on record. Jesus is the one who affirms Leviticus 19 as well as Deuteronomy 24. All of Scripture is God breathed. All of it is God's words. You cannot separate Jesus from the entire Bible for all of it is his word. So he does go on record. But second of all, we also see it right here in Mark chapter 10. We see where Jesus is going on record by declaring and affirming God's design for marriage. And here he is clearly declaring marriage is between one man and one woman for life. This is God's design. 
And we live in a world that's trying to change definitions and trying to be inclusive and exclusive. Listen, let's let the scriptures do the work. God has made himself clear, and we as followers of Jesus, we can't change what God has made clear. We will be unfaithful. We will hear the condemnation of our Savior on the last day if we say things that he did not say, if we stand for things that he did not stand for. And we as followers of Jesus with compassion must go into a world not with anger or fist clenched, but with compassion and gentleness and declares, thus says the Lord. This is God's design and it's good. Don't go that path. It leads to death and it leads to destruction. The beauty of the gospel is that Jesus died for the sexual brokenness of all mankind and he brings us back to himself. And he draws us not only into a right relationship with himself, but he begins to reorient us back to his original design as we see here in the text. You see, Jesus is abundantly clear here on where God stands on marriage. But what does it require? Well, we see where Jesus tells us what marriage requires. First, we see that it requires leaving parents. Look at verse 7. It says, a man leaves his father and mother. I love weddings. As a pastor, it's one of my favorite things that I get to do. I get to stand before two starry-eyed people as they look longingly into one another's eyes. And it's a celebration of love, of friendship, of what God has done, of bringing the two of them together. The wedding ceremony is so precious and special because it's time to worship the Lord. It's a time in which this couple declares their allegiance to one another. It's also a time in which a covenant is made between the two, a covenant before God and a covenant to God and to one another. It's wonderful. But the wedding ceremony is also a a division. There is a breaking that takes place. For at the wedding ceremony, it's almost a declaration of independence in which the couple says, mom and dad, I'm now leaving. I'm breaking off and I am now forming a new family. It's God's good design. And it's a a design that hurts as parents. It's sad to see your child, but it's also joyful to see your child Break off from your family. That doesn't mean that we don't maintain relationships and love and friendship, and, but there's also a significant separation that takes place. You see, God's design is for the husband to leave his mother and his father. But then the second thing that happens, it's not just a leaving, but it's second, it's a cleaving. It's cleaving to spouse. The word cleave there in verse 8, the two will become one flesh. It points to what the King James says is a bond. Okay, the word cleave means to stick together. Like glue that holds two things together, a husband and wife are to cleave. In fact, it's a one flesh relationship that God designed in sexual intimacy. Quite literally, the husband and wife, they fit together as one. Here, Jesus is holding up sex as the exclusive union between a husband and a wife, and it involves no one else. It's a oneness that it includes an emotional and mental, physical, sexual, financial, complete oneness 
between a husband and a wife. So there is a leaving and there is a cleaving. And it's beautiful and it's good and it's the way God designed it. The third C that we see here in the text is God's charge to everyone. Jesus gives the final word here in verse 9. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. God is the one who instituted marriage. God is the one who brings the husband and wife together. So man must never break up, destroy, or divorce what God has ordained. Woe to that man or woman who, te- who tempts, flirts, or seduces someone away from their spouse. God does not take kindly to those who try to divide what he has brought together. God will judge sin. He must. Hebrews 4 verse 13 all things will be laid bare before the eyes of him of whom we must give an account. Walk in wisdom. God designed marriage as good and right and not to be divided or destroyed. Sadly, there are Christians whom I have heard say, well, the Lord told me to divorce this person so I can marry this person. Eh, No, he didn't. God will never tell you to do something that contradicts his word. You can say, but this is what I feel. Don't trust your feelings. Your feelings lie to you. We don't do what we want to do. We are not people who are like the people of Israel with hard hearts and stiff necks. We are a people who are obedient and compliant and submissive to the Lord. Hear me on this. If you're married in here, I want to encourage you, take divorce off the table. Some people will say, well, Kenneth, that's our safety net in case things go south. I would make the argument that the safety net is when you take it off the table. It's when you say, no, 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 I'm, I'm not going to go that path. Through the difficulty, we're going to work our way through it. Now, hear me on this. There's two parts to this message, so I need you to come back next week. Because some of you right now are ready to throw something at me, <laughs> which is fine. Okay. But I need you to hear the heart of the Lord here in which God has brought together, let no man separate. In fact, I want to encourage you, Christy and I, we call it the D word, divorce. Don't bring it up for any reason. Don't joke about it at parties. Don't use it as a weapon in an argument. You're hanging out with friends and one spouse takes a jab at the other. Everyone laughs. Well, you say that again, I'm going to divorce you. No, 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 no. Don't give the devil a foothold. Don't even plant that seed. You're in the midst of a heated argument with your spouse. Don't plant the seed. Don't say, well, if you keep this up, I'm going to divorce you. Not an option. Okay? I want to encourage you. Do not separate what God has brought together. Here's where I want to finish today. And it's with what I've heard most frequently of why someone would want a divorce. And usually it's because... I don't feel love for them anymore. 
Kenneth, what do I do when I don't feel love for my spouse? Well, I want to conclude with these four truths that I think are helpful. It's your impact point. The first is this, get on your face and pray. If the chemistry is left, if the sparks no longer fly, pray. Ask the Lord to change your heart. Ask the Lord to give you fresh eyes to see your spouse the way he does. Humble yourself before God and ask for him to change you. Yeah, you can ask the Lord to change your spouse, but say, God, change me. Give me a fresh perspective. Help me to see them the way that you see them. Secondly, get out your Bible and obey. One of the reasons that you don't feel love for your spouse is because your Bible is sitting on your bookshelf closed. If you're not spending time daily abiding in Christ, studying his word, digging into the scriptures, you're going to find that your love for man is going to grow cold. Your love for neighbor is not going to be as strong, and it will begin with your closest neighbor, your spouse. See, when your relationship with God is not intimate, do not be surprised that your marriage isn't either. You've got to remain close and intimate with the Lord. And out of the overflow of your intimacy and closeness with the Lord, it leads to the closeness and intimacy with your spouse. See, when Jesus satisfies your soul, your spouse no longer bears the weight of satisfying you. You're finding Jesus is enough. That even in the midst of right now, I really want to strangle my spouse. You're saying, Jesus is enough. And Lord, I'm going to pray. I'm going to hit my face. I'm going to ask you to change their heart. I'm going to dig into your word. I'm going to do what you tell me to do. And listen, listen, listen. This, this, This sounds simple. It ain't easy. And they're different, by the way. Simple is not easy. This is simple. But this is not easy. Because this is a call to die. This is Luke 9, 23, that if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. This is the call of a disciple. That in the covenant of marriage, you're willing to endure difficulty and struggle and saying, Lord, I want to make my heart so satisfied in you that I'm going to release my spouse from having to bear that burden that they were never designed to carry in the first place. Thirdly, Get off your phone and serve. Your phone is a good tool. It's a terrible God. For many of us, it's a distraction from relationships around us. It cultivates comparison, coveting, and selfishness. Question, do you touch your spouse as much as you touch your phone? I think we would see a lot healthier marriages if you put the phone down and you got off the couch and you served. You put the needs of your spouse before yourself. Fourthly, get over yourself and lead your feelings. You lead your feelings. Your feelings don't lead you. Proverbs 23, verse 19, Solomon says, Hear, my son, and be wise, and direct your heart in the way. Direct your heart. Guide your heart. Tell your heart what to feel until it feels it. Because again, your feelings will lie to you. We do not trust our hearts. It's deceptive above all else, Jeremiah tells us. And so we, we are going to lead our feelings to be 
faithful to what God has called us to even when we don't feel it. This is what we do as followers of Jesus. So 2010, Christy and I had four sons, ages two and under, exhausted in a very difficult season of life and ministry and family. And so one night, we finally got the kids in bed. We sat down in front of the TV just to relax for a minute. And I turned to her and I said, Christy, I love you. And I'm not going anywhere, but I don't feel love for you. And she started laughing. And she said, I feel the exact same way. (laughs) That was rock bottom for us. But in the midst of that moment, we said, we're not going to trust our feelings. We've made a covenant. And we're going to stick it out. And by God's grace, the Lord over time, restored the feelings. I want to encourage you, take divorce off the table. Now, and some of you right now, flags are going up saying, what about, what about, what about? We'll get to the what abouts next week. But for now, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Why? Because Jesus doesn't divorce you. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Never will I do this to you. In fact, Jesus at the cross took something like this so that you don't have to. And out of the overflow of a Savior who loves you, and gave himself for you. He no longer treats anyone like this. Instead, as your savior, he uses this. And every cut is on purpose, and every cut is designed to heal, to heal your marriage, to heal your friendships, to heal your relationship with him. And he does it through a bloodstained cross where Jesus made a way for all mankind to be healed forever. And out of the overflow of that healing, allow it to impact everything, including your marriage.